History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 125th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we are going to Ohio and we are featuring the Golden Lamb Inn, Denise. Yes, we are. Before we get into that, we want to point people over to our website, historyghostbump.com. And if people would like to send us some feedback, Denise, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we got an email from Jessica Peace. Good afternoon. My name is Jessica Peace, and I'm a brand new listener to podcasts in general. I, like a lot of people, found you after listening to Bizarre States. I just finished the podcast about the inn in Asheville, and I got so excited. I live about 15 minutes away from Greensboro, North Carolina, and I recently just went on a ghost walk downtown with a company called Nightmares Around Elm Street. A lot of stories caught my attention, but the one about the Blandwood Mansion interested me the most. While I was there, I got odd feelings that someone was watching me out of the observation tower, and the guide said that many ghosts do hang out in and around the tower. I thought it may be a great idea for another show. I'm going on another ghost walk around Winston-Salem, North Carolina this weekend, so if I find any stories, I will share. Thank you so much, and you girls are amazing. Denise, we had asked if we had any Mormon listeners for them to contact us and let us know a little bit more about the beliefs there, and we actually got two emails about that. The first one's from Corey. She says, Hello, ladies. I just finished listening to your episode on the Capitol Theater. I'm post-Mormon, but many of my family and friends remain faithful members of the church. Discussing belief is hard, as a lot of what is taught is the opinion of the speaker and is subject to change. There's much taught by early leaders like Brigham Young, for instance, that are flat out said to be wrong these days. Anyway, I thought you did an excellent overview of the Mormon position on ghosts. A few things, though, I've heard it taught, but again, don't know how doctrinal this is, that the spirit world where we go when we die is earth, that the spirits of the dead are all around us. We just can't see them. The idea that only males over 18 can cast out evil spirits is not quite true. I was taught that anyone can do it. The difference is a man would say, by the power of the holy Mechizeldeck priesthood, which I hold in the name of Christ, while a woman or child would say in the name of Jesus Christ and by the faith I have in him or something of the like. Finally, in the Doctrine and Covenants, a book of scripture revealed to Joseph Smith and few others, there is actually direction on how to tell if a spirit that approaches you is saying that it has a message from God if it really is from God or trying to deceive you. Doctrine and Covenants section 129 to be exact. I've included a link, but will also sum up rather than subject you to the old-timey type English. Thank you for that, Corey. Yes. Basically, if a messenger comes to you saying he has a message from God, you offer to shake hands. If it's an angel with a flesh and bone body, it will shake your hand and you will feel it. If it's a spirit without a body, it will decline to shake hands. If it's an evil spirit intent on deceiving, it will shake your hand, but you will not feel it. You then cast it out as I described above. Personally, when someone approaches me and says they have a message from God, I generally say no thanks and close the door in their face. This (laughs) seems to work too. Well, I guess that would. How interesting that they figure out what a spirit is by shaking a hand. That is very interesting. I'd never heard that before. So thank you so much for sharing that. I had no idea. You know, the women go through Jesus, but the men go through the priesthood of Mekekelech or whatever his name is. Mekizeldech. That's actually, Jesus was from the priesthood of Mekizeldech. 
It's in the Old Testament. He's, oh, is it? Yeah, he's one of the, he's like the number one priest. And a lot of people believe, kind of getting into some of the supernatural, that that actually was Jesus too. That uh-huh. he showed up on earth before he came before his birth. And that that was one of the identities he took on, I guess you could say. At least that's what I've heard. Angie also sent us an email and she said that she was born into the religion Mormon. And she says that it's very similar to the Masons. She says, my father had authority posts in church, so I was able to find out a few things that are supposed to be very super secret. And only once you reach a position in the church, you find out about the secrets of the church, which also is like Masons. As for the spooky part, this is supposed to be very super secretive, but Mormons do believe in life after death. They want all of your family to be together. They are very big in tracing your ancestry. Ancestry Ancestry.com is actually run by the Mormon church. As I got older, it was very important for me to know who my ancestors were because in after death, we wanted to be reunited with them. In order to do that, we have to make sure that we're Christian enough. You know how Catholics had this whole thing back in the day where you paid the church an offering so your loved one's soul wasn't in purgatory? Well, the Mormons have something like that. They offer the young souls of the living adolescent, meaning me, and we have to be dunked in baptism for our dearly departed. I think I saved about 30 to 40 ancestor souls of our (laughs) church members. That's a lot of dunking. (laughs) One thing that stood out to me was a story they told us right before doing the baptism. It was a story of a young girl sitting as we were waiting for her turn at the baptism for the dead. That's what they called it. As she was sitting there, she noticed a fog was coming in over her eyes as she adjusted. She noticed that the room had filled with translucent people. As she sat there, she noticed these people were not dressed in modern clothes. She recognized one of them. It turned out to be an ancestor of hers. When she heard her ancestor's name mentioned in the baptism, the figure turned to her, smiled, and disappeared. I thought it was cool. I was very disappointed I didn't have the same imagery when I was getting dunked. As an elder, what we call missionaries, they have the power to heal. They carry blessed oil in the form of a keychain. My dad had that. It's like powerful holy water, hence the reason why male and females can do stuff like exorcisms. This is why only church members with top secret clearance are allowed in the rest of the temple and everyone else is regulated to the visitor center. And she says that's where she is too now that she's inactive. And David Black gave us some more insight on Black Aggie. I'm currently listening to the History Goes Bump podcast, episode 24, The Legend of Black Aggie. I live in the area of Drood Ridge Cemetery where Black Aggie used to sit and I drive past it every day. I have even considered getting a plot there for my wife and me because it's such a beautiful cemetery. Growing up in the area has made me very aware of the legend of the statue, and though it was moved to the Smithsonian Institute when I was eight years old, I do remember seeing it in the cemetery. My father took me there at least one time when I was young, and we drove past it slowly in the car. The statue was part of my father's growing up. As a teenager, he would go there with his friends, and they would dare each other to sit in the statue's lap. When he was older, he would take dates there for the scare factor. He also told me that he never saw the eyes glow red, but that he and his friends would catch lightning bugs, pinch their tails off, and smear them in the statue's eyes. Then the eyes would glow a yellow-green for a time, and that looked kind of scary. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never thought of that, but yeah, I guess that's a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, especially if you're trying to have the scare factor for your date. Sure. Look at the eyes are glowing. My dad has told me that when he was young, he never feared the curse of the statue, though now that he's 85 years old, he's rethinking all the time he sat in her lap. He just might die one day after all. Denise, we have a lot of fans down in Australia. It's wonderful. We heard from Stacy. She wrote on our website, giving us a lot of encouragement. And uh, thank you for her kind remarks and her comments. And she just found us last month. So she's working her way through. 
We also heard from Anne in Australia. She said, hi, ladies. I emailed you earlier this year about buying a ghost tour for a girlfriend for Christmas. Absolutely loved it. We went through Lantern Tours, and that's lanternghosttours.com. I actually follow them on Google+. They do a lot of ghost tours all around Australia, and our tour guide was fantastic. Sitting in the hanging tower, the atmosphere was so heavy, and we were both relieved to get out of there. We didn't have a lot of activity the night we went, but we were standing in Block A, which is where the death row prisoners were kept. I was standing at the back of the group listening to the guide tell about the stairs and the young girl who died there. I felt what I thought was someone standing a little too close and their breath was on my neck. You got it, turned around, and there was no one behind me or even close enough to be a possibility. The history was so interesting. I didn't realize that the last person to be executed in Adelaide was in the year of my birth, 1964. That's a pretty good year, Denise, huh? That's a great year. (laughs) One thing I found interesting is that the executed have been buried in the grounds by law, and their graves are marked by numbers on the outside wall of the jail. As time has gone on, some of the graves have had pathways and sewage pipes laid next to them or over the top. We moved quite quickly along the path at one point when we stopped for the guide to explain this to us. Barb and I were standing right on top of where the worst offender had been buried under the cement path. Yeah, I think I would have moved quite quickly from being right there. Uh, She also just wanted to say how much she really enjoys the podcast, looks forward to them each week and listens while she works, and is hoping that we will come and do a little visit down there. So we're definitely got that planned. Denise, we had a great time in Savannah. Yes, we did. That was fantastic. Hung out with the folks. We did a few periscopes. We did a couple while we were in Bonaventure Cemetery, and also we did one in Colonial Park Cemetery, which is the oldest cemetery in Savannah and right smack dab in the historic downtown area. And wouldn't you know that we met a couple of gals while we were hanging out there. I come over to the bench because Denise was just sitting with the dogs and taking a break. And I noticed that she was talking to two women and she said, oh, here she comes. And so they were wondering a little bit about the cemetery. So we got to talk about the cemetery a little bit. This was Belinda and Maggie. Hey, Belinda and Maggie. And Belinda turns to us and she goes, so how do you guys feel about ghosts? (laughs) (laughs) And Denise and I just kind of looked at each other and had those little wry grins going and we're like, well, we don't have a problem with ghosts. Why do you ask? And before you knew it, we were talking all about ghosts and hauntings and things. Come to find out that Belinda had been part of a ghost hunting group in Missouri and that she'd been to the McPike Mansion and was telling us all about that. And she told us some great stuff about the Lemp Mansion and things like that. So we had a wonderful conversation. And so thanks so much, ladies, for sitting and talking to us for, gosh, it was a long while. Yes, it but was, it was very nice. Yes, it was very fun. And we did a ghost tour with Blue Orb Tours, and it was excellent. Very, very good. I loved that tour. Chastity was our tour guide. Yes, and she was very, very good. So I was so glad that we got connected with Blue Orb and went on that tour because it was exactly right up our alley. It was not cheesy. And one of the things that we learned on that, we've been to Savannah three times, and this was the first time we'd heard that when we were, was it Wright Square? Correct, yes. We were in Wright Square. This was a place where people were executed. The first execution in Georgia took place there in Savannah. Chastity asked us all to look up at the live oaks and what didn't we see? And we didn't see any Spanish moss. Now, for those of you who don't live down in the South and you haven't seen live oak trees and the Spanish moss, a a live oak tree, especially an old one, there's no way it is not going to have Spanish moss all over it. These trees had none. And they contacted some voodoo and hoodoo practitioners and had them come down and see what they thought about that. And they said, well, when this happens, it usually means 
that innocent blood has been shed. And so it goes down to those roots of the trees and they cannot grow Spanish moss on them. And Spanish moss is kind of like a parasite that grows on trees. Yeah, it's not Spanish and it's not a moss. No, no. That was amazing because the squares are just surrounded by these huge trees and not one of them had Spanish moss in it. I'd never seen anything like it. So if you're not a believer, that's one of those things that makes you go, hmm. Hmm. Do want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Anne. Hey, Anne. With an E. With an E. Michael. Hi, Michael. Nikki with an I-E. Hey, Nikki with an I-E. Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. April, and she's got a Y instead of an I. Hi, April with the Y instead of I. Adam. Hey, Adam. Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Jordan. Hey, Jordan. Stacy with an I-E. Hey, Stacy with an I-E. Sarah with an H. Sarah with an H. And there's another Denise in the group. And welcome, Denise. We need to gang up on them. The location for this episode was suggested to us by listener Stephanie Martin, and we got research assistance from Annette Student and Sharon Spungen. Denise, are you ready to go to the inn? I certainly am. All right, let's go. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity is by Bob Sherfield. Sir Thomas Tresham was a Roman Catholic during a period of English history when to hold such beliefs and refuse to convert to Protestantism was a crime. During the latter years of the 16th century, Tresham spent almost 15 years in prison for being a recusant, as well as being fined a figure of some 8,000 pounds, equivalent to 1.6 million today. Upon his final release from imprisonment in 1593, Tresham decided he wanted to construct a building that would act as a protestation of his faith, and so Rushton Triangular Lodge was conceived. He didn't build an extravagantly stately home or romantic country manor house, but rather, internally at least, a plain and compact building suitable for a gamekeeper or someone of similar social standing. Built to represent his belief in the Holy Trinity, the number three reoccurs time and again in the design and construction of the folly. Its three sides are each 33 feet long, with three gargoyles mounted at roof level. It has three floors, each with three triangular windows and triangular chimneys. Running around the exterior of the building are three Latin inscriptions. The first one is from Isaiah 45, 8, and I'm not going to say the Latin, but it does translate to, let the earth open and bring forth salvation. The second one is from Romans 8:35, and it translates to who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And the third one is a paraphrase of Habakkuk 3, 2, and it translates to, I have contemplated thy works, O Lord, and was afraid. Above the entrance to the lodge is engraved the number 5555. Though the number seems to have no specific meaning, it has been noted that if you subtract 1593, the year its construction began, you were left with 3962, the date in B.C. which, according to the Venerable Beatty, the flood occurred. Numerous other religious carvings adorn the structure, including the seven eyes of God, a pelican in her piety, and the hand of God touching a globe. The chimney displays a lamb and cross, a chalice, and the monogram IHS. 
On each floor, the main room is hexagonal, leaving triangular-shaped rooms in each corner. The roof of the building features three gables on each side, which are surmounted by three-sided obelisks. While it wasn't unusual for Elizabethans to incorporate messages into their buildings, that a man who had been fined and imprisoned for his beliefs would go on to build such a public demonstration of them with such a bizarre structure certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History This Day in History is brought to us by April Rogers Crick. On this day, May 19, in 1536, Anne Boleyn knelt upright on a scaffold in the Tower of London on the orders of her husband, King Henry VIII. Looming over her was an expert swordsman, Jean Rambou, who had been brought over from France for just this execution. A single stroke from Rambou's weapon sliced her head from her body. The date of Anne's birth is unknown, but on the day of her beheading, she was only in her late 20s or early 30s and had been Queen of England for three short years. Anne was just a teenager when King Henry VIII fell in love with her. At the time, he was married to Queen Catherine of Aragon and had been for 24 years. Catherine had failed to produce a male heir. Becoming increasingly frustrated with the lack of a male heir, Henry started looking for a different woman to mother a son. In 1525, he began to pursue Anne, who was one of the queen's maids. Unlike the numerous other girls, including her sister Mary, Anne refused Henry's advances. At this time, England was still Catholic, and Henry had to ask Pope Clement VII to annul his marriage to Catherine. The Pope refused. Making a long story short, Henry severed ties with the Roman Church and declared himself supreme head of the Church of England. Now he reigned over England's political and religious lives. In 1533, he divorced Catherine. Henry and Anne finally married after eight years of political and religious turmoil. Anne quickly became pregnant, but later that year when the baby was born a red-haired girl, Henry was devastated. Anne's intelligence, wit, and political news did not make things easier for her. The public felt Catherine was the rightful queen and Anne was nothing but a whore who had bewitched the king. Many miscarriages followed and this served as proof to the public that she might just be a witch or the Lord had cursed their union. The king's advisors were no help. They created an atmosphere of mistrust, whispered betrayals, religious superstition, and plotting. Anne knew her downfall was inevitable. She had no son to protect her and the king, becoming increasingly desperate, lost interest in her. Wanting to be rid of Anne, outrageous charges of high treason, incest, and adultery were made up. What was to be a travesty of justice, Anne was found guilty. The only mercy Henry showed was to have her executed in the swift and humane sword-swinging French style rather than a drawn-out and nasty burning of the stake. With no other way for a savvy-spirited woman to better herself other than marriage, Anne was a victim of the men who surrounded her. She was used as a pawn by her father as he sought power of his own, used by the king to mother sons, and used as a scapegoat by the villainous self-serving court. Regardless of being executed by beheading, Anne got the last laugh. She became a hugely influential figure in English history. She rose from commoner to queen in a man's world. She was the mother of what some considered the finest monarch England has ever had. 
listening to History Goes Bump. The Golden Lamb Inn is the state of Ohio's oldest hotel. The hotel has been the gathering place for residents of Lebanon for over 200 years. Through the years, it has changed ownership and names and hosted a variety of presidents and famous people. But the one constant has been the symbol for which it is named, the Golden Lamb. The deep history of this inn includes a connection to stagecoaches, war, and much more, which has led to rumors of hauntings at the establishment. For some guests, more than just their signatures remain at the inn. Their spirits seem to have remained. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Golden Lamb Inn. Ichabod Corwin, Silas Huron, Ephraim Hathaway, and Samuel Manning founded Lebanon, Ohio in 1802. When they platted the town made up of a hundred lots, only two cabins had been built. Ichabod Corwin's cabin, built on Broadway, was Lebanon's first home. In 1802, Ephraim Hathaway purchased the structure from Corwin and opened Lebanon's first business, the Black Horse Tavern. And wouldn't you know, Denise, that the first business would be a bar? Of course. This was a stagecoach stop along the way to Cincinnati. In 1826, Hathaway replaced the log cabin with a brick building. At different times, it was known as the Only Hotel, the Bradley House, Lebanon House, and the Stubbs House. When added to the National Register of Historic Places on January 12, 1978, it was called the Golden Lamb. And I like that name the best. In 1803, Jonas Seaman and his wife Martha, along with their children, arrived in Lebanon. Seaman was born in New Jersey, where his father, William, owned a tavern in Hopewell. After his arrival in Lebanon, Seaman built a two-story log building on lots he purchased from Ichabod Corwin. The lots were located on Broadway at the crossroads of the north, south, and east-west route through town, making it an ideal stagecoach stop. On December 23, 1803, Seaman paid $4 to secure a license from the Warren County Court to operate a house of public entertainment. It is unknown when the tavern was first named the Golden Lamb. It was a common practice for early businesses to hang gaily painted signs to attract travelers. Since many people could not read, the signs were often pictorial, often with animal illustrations such as geese, pigs, and sheep. So having a golden lamb on a sign was not unusual. I like that practice. We should go back to it. Martha, who was industrious, thrifty, and a good cook, helped the inn become successful. They employed a few servants to help with the spinning and weaving, churning, soap making, washing, and ironing. They had vegetable gardens, pig pens, and chicken houses behind their inn. Guests were served plentiful, good pioneer food obtained from the seamen's vegetable gardens, pig pens, and chicken houses behind the inn, along with deer, bear, wild turkey, hot cornbread, and old-fashioned apple butter. The inn stables, which faced Main Street, provided shelter for guest horses. They soon became known as a good place for a meal and to spend the night. After Lebanon's first courthouse was built across from the inn in 1805, the Siemens Tavern became even more popular. It was a gathering place for lawyers and politicians, some of them prominent in Ohio's legislature and courts. The tavern's public rooms became a gathering place where world news was exchanged and discussed and where messages and letters could be sent and or received. Financial problems plagued the nation in the 19th century the cost of living continued to rise. Tavern licenses, which cost $4 in 1803, rose to $10 in 1805. Now that's a pretty huge difference, especially when you look at the time period to go from $4 to 10. Absolutely. And that's only in two years. Huge inflation. 
debts and the ability to collect them concerned all businessmen, including tavern and innkeepers. Despite the success of his tavern, Seaman had a lot of outstanding debt, which prevented him from paying his debts. In an attempt to collect the outstanding debt, Seaman put an advertisement in the Western Star in 1807, but it proved unsuccessful. He was forced to take out a mortgage, but still was unable to pay his debt, so in 1809, a public sale was held. Lebanon became a meeting place for troops raised in Hamilton, Butler, Claremont, and Warren during the War of 1812. The added activity and apparent prosperity did not help the Siemens, who were forced to finally give up their tavern. So what's really interesting is this tavern not only was a place where these politicians were coming, but now you've got all of these soldiers that were going to fight in the War of 1812 were gathering there as well and making their plans. So this really was, as we described in the intro, a gathering place for everybody. It was the central hub. Now, when you think about it along those lines, how bad must the debts have been and how expensive was it to run a business that they were forced into giving that up? And they they had to have been prospering. Oh, absolutely. With that many people coming through, you would think they would have been rocking the house. This is like the Whistle Stop Cafe. There's just nowhere else to go, you know. Ichabod Corwin purchased the Siemens Tavern and in 1815 replaced the log structure with a brick building to house the tavern. For short periods over the next five years, Ephraim Hathaway, A. Hill, and several others operated the tavern. After their arrival in Lebanon in early 1820, Henry and Mary Scher became the proprietors of the famous and successful hotel and tavern. They operated it together until Henry's death in 1830. Then Mary operated it alone for seven years. By this time, the tavern had truly become a house of public entertainment. Advertisements announced plays, animal acts, and freaks performing at the tavern. Since Lebanon had no theater and not many public buildings where entertainers could perform, the tavern became the town's first theater. Plans for Ohio's canals, good roads, railroads, and bridges were discussed in the hotel's parlors. Celebrations and political rallies were common occurrences. For a week in 1827, the hotel housed three prominent foreign guests, Lord Dimnon and Lord Denison, members of the House of Lords in England, and the Earl of Derby, who was Lord Stanley at the time and later Prime Minister of England. Denise, they had freak shows there. Very, very cool. (laughs) Diane would have been there every single night. No kidding. I would have been like, this place is awesome. For many years, the Golden Lamb had competition from the Indian Chief, a tavern located on Main Street behind the courthouse. William Ferguson was proprietor of the Indian. Both hotels-slash-taverns were stage stops. Coaches from Sandusky to Cincinnati stopped at the Golden Lamb, and coaches from Lancaster to Cincinnati stopped at the Indian. After Ferguson's death in 1831, the Golden Lamb once again became the premier hotel in town, with professional men and tradesmen locating their businesses near the hotel. It's like two different taxi companies. You take your guests over there, we'll take our guests over here. Exactly. In 1837, Mary sold the Golden Lamb to John and Aaron Polly, who kept it for only a short time. One of the biggest events during the tavern's early history was the elaborate dinner served on June 9, 1840, to celebrate the arrival of the first canal boat in Lebanon. Isaac Stubbs purchased the tavern in February 1841 for $3,150. Can you believe that? An entire business for just a couple months mortgage. Now, he was a brilliant man because only a month later, he turned it around and sold it to a man named Calvin Bradley for $6,700. So for more than double what he paid for it. 
that what the tavern became known as the Bradley House at that time. Bradley was well known and remembered for many years after his death as being a genial host who provided fine food, splendid banquets, and gracious hospitality. One of his famous early guests was 30-year-old Charles Dickens, who arrived by coach from Cincinnati on April 20th, 1842 with his wife, Catherine, and her maid. Dickens kept a journal of his first trip to America, which later became the basis of his book, American Notes, published that year in October. He noted in his journal that they arrived at the Bradley House around 1 p.m. and dined shortly after with the boarders in the hotel. Beverage choices were coffee and tea because it was a temperance hotel. After ordering a brandy and being refused, Dickens wrote in his journal, This preposterous forcing of unpleasant drinks down the reluctant throats of travelers is not at all uncommon in America. <laughs> After the meal and a change of horses, the Dickens party continued its all-night-long journey to Columbus, Ohio. So I guess he was a little upset he couldn't get his liquor. Yep, we've <laughs> heard those statements at the Magic Kingdom before. You know, this is interesting. I guess they didn't really have any temperance going on over across the pond there. Since he was saying, this is what happens to all travelers over here. It's not uncommon. I love how they were forcing unpleasant drinks. Tea is pretty good, and I know you love your coffee. Absolutely. In 1846, Bradley moved to Cincinnati, where he opened the Western Hotel. Isaac Stubbs reposed the building, which he and his heirs owned until 1914. Stubbs, a Quaker from Georgia, was a prosperous businessman who was engaged in many ventures. On March 7, 1845, he placed the following advertisement in the Western Star. That valuable tavern stand, long known as the Golden Lamb Hotel, now the Lebanon House in the town of Lebanon, Warren County, Ohio, is now for rent or for sale. The house has lately been enlarged and is in the first state of improvement. The stabling, which is new, is large and commodious, and the whole premise is well worth the notice of those who may wish to purchase or rent property of this kind. Stubbs also advertised that a considerable amount of furniture used in the house could be purchased. So starting in 1847, we have Samuel Egbert advertising that he's the manager of the Golden Lamb. And then a few months later, there's an E.A. Wiles that's going to advertise that he's manager of the Lebanon house. So apparently they use these names interchangeably. And then as the years progress, we're just going to go through a ton of hotel managers. And obviously, this isn't working out for whoever these managers are because they're just going through so many of them. So Isaac Stubbs, who was the owner at this time, realized that this probably would work out better if he had a setup where it was an owner manager, which makes me think of Bates Motel. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it would make you think of Bates Motel. Oh, no spoilers here, but oh my God. Anyway, so he decided that he was going to have his son, Albert, become the manager. And he did just that. And Albert remained the manager there for 36 years. So it was a good decision it on was his a part. Very good sure. decision. And of course, since their last name was Stubbs, they changed the name of the Golden Lamb to the Stubbs house for a while. But then they changed it back to the Lebanon house because that was what people were more familiar with. And as we know, really, I'm sure most people were just calling it the Golden Lamb because that's what everybody knew it as. In 1878, Stubbs added a fourth story to the hotel to accommodate men building the railroad. The hotel's popularity continued to grow over the years, and over those years, 12 presidents have either eaten or stayed at the hotel. That's a lot to really boast of, because if you think about it, frankly, I had never heard of this inn until Stephanie suggested it to us. Right. And to think that 12 presidents darkened the door there? That's amazing. Absolutely. And um, I do have a list of those presidents. Um, President John Quincy Adams and President Martin Van Buren, Rutherford B. Hayes, James A. Garfield and William McKinley, Warren G. Hardy, Ulysses S. Grant, William Howard Taft, Ronald Reagan, 
and George W. Bush Jr. And the interesting thing is that George W. Bush is the only president who visited the Golden Lamb while he was actually president. There were a couple of them who visited after their terms, and then most of the rest, it was before they had become president. And with George W. Bush, he actually addressed a crowd in front of the hotel and said, I am proud to be the first sitting president to have visited here. Actually, I'm the first standing president today. And then some other famous people who visited the hotel were Barbara Bush, which was the first lady, former U.S. Senator, Mayor of New York, and Governor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, Arthur Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, and we did do a podcast on him, poet James Whitcomb Riley, author Harriet Beecher Stowe, education reformer and a Massachusetts politician, Horace Mann, Jeremiah Morrow, represented Ohio in the United States House of Representatives, was a U.S. Senator and Governor of Ohio, and last but not least, artist Marcus Mote. Robert Jones and a partner leased the Lebanon Hotel in 1926, and by 1927, he and another partner purchased the hotel. By the end of the year, Jones was the sole owner. His heirs continue to own the hotel today. Jones changed the name back to the Golden Lamb. The hotel, which had 42 guest rooms and a dining room, was renovated into a restaurant with 10 dining rooms and 18 guest rooms, each named after a U.S. president or prominent person who visited the hotel. Jones and his wife, Virginia, once again made the Golden Lamb a well-known hotel and restaurant. When the couple retired in 1969, the hotel was leased to the Commissar family, who at the time owned Cincinnati's Masonette Restaurant. Jones died in 1996, and his wife died in 2004, and they only had one child, a daughter. She had married a guy by the name of William C. Portman. She died in 1994, and then he died in 2010, and it is their three children that inherited the hotel building, and they still own it. So now it's owned by the Portmans. Stevens Hospitality, which is run by Stephen W. and Stephen D. Mullinger, became the owners and operators of the Golden Lamb Hotel and Restaurant. And the Mullingers and Portmans invested over $7 million together in renovating the building, which included a brand new kitchen. And now the Golden Lamb is currently being managed by the Phoenix Restaurant Group from Cincinnati, Ohio. So again, boy, this hotel went through a lot of hands. And what a renovation there. That's a big change to go from 42 guest rooms to 18 and they have all of these individual dining rooms so if you want to have your own little private dining room you can do that and some of the names of the rooms denise you've got your charles dickens room the ulysses s grant room samuel clemens room they have a ronald reagan room so it's all the list of all the presidents and famous people that we just exactly went through, all have their own rooms now. Harriet Beecher Stowe. So it's like <laughs> they went through the list and said, huh. And they're really neat looking rooms. And they have, it looks like antique furniture in them from what I'm looking at on the website. There's canopy beds and all kinds of good stuff. So it looks like a really neat place to stay, even though there's not as many rooms. So very neat looking place. Many of the guests and employees at the inn have had strange experiences, leading many to believe that the hotel is haunted. Two night auditors have had paranormal encounters. One witnessed several chairs in the closed dining room fall over all at once. The other auditor looked over at the staircase one evening while working and saw a little girl standing there. The sight was unusual for the middle of the night as there were no adults around. Suddenly, the child disappeared. The golden lamb is believed to be haunted by a little girl. Some believe her to be Sarah, the niece of the inn's manager, Isaac Stubbs. Others think she is Henry Clay's daughter, Eliza, who did expire at the inn due to a terrible fever. One housekeeper is confident that Sarah is the spirit. She heard a tricycle coming down the hall one day. 
A young voice said, Sarah's back. She ran to the hall but saw no one and nothing out there. An employee named Jerry told Cincinnati City Beat that she had heard an authoritative disembodied male voice call out, Sarah. She was sure it was Sarah's grandfather. The strange thing is that Sarah did not die at the inn. She grew up, got married, and died at a ripe old age. Was her stay here imprinted on the location somehow? Many items are heard falling off the walls in Sarah's room as well. And Sarah's room is a room that they have just kept. Nobody stays in there. It's part of a museum that they've set up. And it has a lot of her original furniture in there, which makes me wonder if somehow she's connected to the objects in that room, that her spirit somehow, because to me, it's just bizarre when somebody grows to a ripe old age and is far away from this location and then they die. Why would they come back here unless it's just those happy memories? But again, as I often wonder, why would you and can you make the decision to revert back to being a little girl when you died an older person? Could it possibly be a residual haunting that it's just that the inn has imprinted her being there as a little girl and it's just a residual thing that... You know, it could be because there's nothing here that would indicate to me that it's an intelligent one. If you're hearing a tricycle, that could be residual. If you hear a young voice saying Sarah's back, could be residual. So that's true. It could be some kind of a residual imprint. And again, it also could be this little girl, Eliza, who had a fever there. And it was really sad because Henry Clay was a politician and they were staying here and his daughter had been sick for, I think it was like three weeks. And the doctor came and checked her out and he said, you know, she really is starting to improve. I think you're good to go, Henry. You can go back to Washington, D.C., get back to work and everything should be fine. Right before he got to Washington, D.C., he got news that she had passed. So oh, can you geez. imagine you're just sitting there waiting for your daughter to get better before you move on? And the doctor says, I think she's going to be fine. So you leave and then she passes away. She was buried in a cemetery near there. And then they did move her body later, which again, disinterring a body and moving it could be that this is a reason here. So who knows who this little girl is, or there could be a couple of them haunting it. And we've always observed that we're not sure about children ghosts ourselves anyway. So right. Now, I'm not really sure how to say this last name, so I might butcher it here. Clement Vallandigham was a political force in Ohio during the Civil War era. He was a Democrat who opposed President Lincoln, and he believed that the South should be allowed to secede. He did not believe that violence should be used to keep the nation together. The Democrats who supported this position were called Peace Democrats. I'd never heard of that, had you, Denise? I have not. So these were people who, even though they were Northerners, believed that the South should be able to secede if they wanted to. General Ambrose Burnside, who we heard about in our Battle of Antietam, Burnside's Bridge, had issued an order in Ohio that outlawed anyone showing sympathy to the enemy, violating the freedom of speech of our fellow Americans. Because while you may not agree with them being supportive of the South's right to secede, they still have a freedom of speech to say they do support that. Valendigam was found in violation and Burnside had him arrested. He was sentenced to jail until the war ended, but President Lincoln commuted the sentence to exile in the Confederacy to prevent peace Democrats from rising up. Vallandigham left the Confederacy after a few weeks and headed to Canada. He returned before the war ended and later headed the Ohio Democrat Party. He was a lawyer as well and would meet his ultimate end while defending a client. Vallandigham was discussing the case with an associate. He had two guns on the table, one loaded, the other not. A local paper describes what happened next. Quote, he picked up a revolver and putting it in his right pocket, drew it out far enough only to keep the muzzle touching his body and snapped the hammer. The weapon exploded and sent its deadly missile into the abdomen at a point almost corresponding with that in which Myers was shot. Mr. Vallandigham exclaimed that he had taken up the wrong pistol. End quote. 
This is why gun safety is so important. Check to see if the gun is loaded. And then why in the hell would you have it pointed at your body anyway, even if you know it's not loaded? That's just stupid. It definitely is very stupid. Well, he died the next morning on the second floor in a parlor at the Golden Lamb Inn. Fallon Diggum was trying to prove that his client did not murder the victim and that rather the victim had shot himself accidentally. His demonstration, while fatal, did result in the acquittal of his client because they said, you know what? He's right. The guy could have shot himself because he did it. (laughs) Way to prove your point. The spirit of the lawyer seems to have remained. His profile has appeared in a photo taken of a second story window. A manager believes she's heard the spirit sigh behind her. The manager said, quote, I turned around fast because it scared me, but there was no one there. The server hadn't seen or heard anything, but I know what I heard. It was a human sound, maybe a man. After all these years, something finally happened to me. I couldn't believe it, end quote. A server and a housekeeper saw full-bodied apparitions of a man resembling Valendigam, and apparently he wore a hat very similar to President Lincoln. So even though he opposed him, he liked wearing that type of top hat that was very long. Civil War General William Sherman has a connection to the Golden Lamb. His father, Charles R. Sherman, was an Ohio Supreme Court justice when he stayed at the inn in 1929. He died suddenly during his stay at the age of 41. He left his wife and 11 children penniless, and she had to give most of the children up for adoption. General Sherman was one of those children. He was raised by a neighbor named Thomas Ewing. Could this fact have left his father guilt-ridden and thus trapped here in the afterlife? Visitors sometimes claim to see a gaunt gray man and smell cigar smoke that is attributed to his spirit. And this is a non-smoking inn, so to be smelling cigar smoke, you wouldn't normally be smelling that. The gift shop has had its share of unexplained occurrences. One employee thinks she attracts spirits to her. There's a shelf in the shop lined with stuffed animals. Many times when this employee would pass the shelf, those stuffed animals would launch themselves towards her. At least they're soft. I know. I was like, say some people get bricks or plates thrown at them. (laughs) So she's a lucky one. And this wasn't just one at a time. The entire shelf full all at once would come (laughs) flying at her. (laughs) That would be very freaky for her. But I wish they had like a closed (laughs) caption camera because that would be kind of (laughs) hilarious. I want a tape of that. Can you just see it? All these little teddy bears. Ah! (laughs) You thought you hated dolls. (laughs) This was witnessed once by another shop employee. This same witness had an experience involving the cash register. She was talking to a guest about the supposed ghosts at the hotel, and she said she did not believe there really were any ghosts. All of a sudden, the register started spitting out a receipt with a bunch of gibberish keystrokes. I guess they were trying to say, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, here I am. This reminds me of when we were doing the Plymouth Ghost Tour and that light turned on when she was like, just ignore the ghosts. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, think, here I am. A blogger at the website All Stays wrote, quote, In addition, we not only experienced some weird lighting effects in our room when we stayed there, but we believed we brought home an otherworldly visitor from the Golden Lamb who spent a month or more hiding and then replacing various things from our home until, on a hunch, we finally asked it to stop. It complied and left our home immediately after that request. So I guess you have to stop blaming your spouse for hiding the keys. It was the ghost. It was the ghost. Of course, I wouldn't have wanted to get it like sent out of my house because then I wouldn't have anybody to blame. That's true. Chris Moody, who spent a night in the Harriet Beecher Stowe room at the Golden Lamb, wrote about his stay on the Internet on August 8, 2012. He wrote that Sarah Stubbs' original room was the Harriet Beecher Stowe room located at the top of the stairs on the fourth floor. But she was forced into a different room and was furious and has since returned to haunt her childhood home. 
Moody's only ghostly experience were loud footsteps on the floor in the room above his. On the way to his room, he passed a busy maid who immediately spotted his voice recorder and notepad. Are you a ghost hunter, she asked, and offered a word of caution. The doors to the TV case pop open all the time, and it's not the latch, she warned. Because I've had the maintenance man check the latch. The phone in the haunted room doesn't work either. The maintenance guys checked that too. There were only a few people staying in the entire hotel that night, including one person sleeping in the Ronald Reagan room on the fourth floor with Moody. While having dinner at the hotel restaurant, Moody quizzed the staff about their experiences with the haunts at the Golden Lamb. His waitress showed him her hand with a nasty scar that stretches across three fingers, which were sliced open when a porcelain sink collapsed on her in the basement. She had just finished telling her colleagues about how all the ghost talk was hogwash, and then the sink came crashing down. Now she's a believer and keeps her distance. She said she wouldn't go upstairs, downstairs, in the tunnels, nothing. She said, no, thank you. Everybody knows that they don't ask me anymore because I'm not going. Now, that could just be a coincidence that the porcelain sink decided to drop at just that moment. But as we were saying earlier, it seems like whenever you're going, yeah, I don't believe in those ghosts, that's when you get poked. Exactly. (laughs) Wow, though, I would rather have the bear's coming flying at me or a register doing some weird stuff rather than a porcelain sink that obviously sounds like she probably had to have some stitches if she's got scarring on her hand. I would agree with you on that one. By the end of his stay, Moody met three staff members who refused to venture to the top floor. I mean, that's pretty bad if they're like, I'm not going up there. Who do they get to clean? The manager told Moody that one night, 40 glasses were destroyed when they suddenly fell from the cupboard and crashed onto the ground. She said, I can't explain that one. It was past midnight and the few guests staying overnight have gone to bed and the night auditor is sitting by himself downstairs listening to piano music from the kitchen. Suddenly the piece is broken by the sudden sound of thump, thump, thump above Moody's head. It stops for a moment and then starts again. He wrote that he had heard stories of past guests saying they hear footsteps in the same room. Only problem? He was on the top floor of the hotel, but it sounds like someone is stomping around directly above him through the ceiling. Then it stopped and didn't happen again. So who is walking around on the ceiling? That Spider-Man? I don't know. Possibly. (laughs) Are the experiences of all these people just really their own overactive imaginations getting the best of them? Are the spirits of some of the guests still checked in? Is the Golden Lamb Inn haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a crazy place. And Denise, when mom was doing a lot of the research on this, she goes, I'd never heard of this place, but I want to stay there now. And she goes, and not because it's haunted. Okay, well, she can stay there and we'll get a campground nearby and then let her tell (laughs) us about things that go bump in the night. I had a feeling you were going to say that. She was like, well, I don't think I'd want to stay on any of the upper floors. I'll come over and have crumpets with her. (laughs) Our next episode is going to feature the Driscoll Hotel in Texas. And this was suggested to us by Whitney Land, and she is also doing the research for it. So another one of those haunted locations in Texas, Denise, that we'll have to visit while we're there. Yes, when we go to San Antonio. And we do have a couple of iTunes reviews to share with you guys. The first one is five stars from Cathington, my new favorite podcast. This podcast is great for people who love a little ghostly history, the best way to make history interesting. If you love haunted places, this is the podcast for you. And then we have Kenyon Taken. This is my favorite podcast, Five Stars. I absolutely love Denise and Diane. They tell you historical stories that have the potential to be haunted, and they present it in such an open way and exciting way that is truly enjoyable and so entertaining. I love that they are skeptics, too, so they aren't trying to sell you on the hauntings. 
Denise and Diane are a great couple and work well together. Again, they haven't seen us like working in the yard. And I love their jokes and how they respond to each other. They make me laugh so much. My husband told me about this podcast and it instantly became my number one favorite. And if they ever come to Texas for a haunted tour, I would go out of my way to meet up with them. Well, mark your calendars for 2017. We will be there. And uh, thank you to your husband for letting you know about us. We appreciate that. Denise, it's because people share the show that we've gotten up to over 500,000 downloads. That that just blows my <laughs> mind. That's crazy. Uh, every time, and I, I know I say this, but when I had my old political internet radio show, it still has yet to hit 200,000 downloads, and it's been sitting up for like seven years, and I hosted it for five, just to show people kind of a comparison. <laughs> well, think about it. Let's see, what do we want to listen to? Haunted histories or politics? <laughs> I know what my choice would be. Indeed. And we got another five-star review from Canada. We love hey. our Canadians too. Our friends to the north. This is from Lisa Ann 91. Five stars. Awesome. Currently listening to all the episodes from the beginning. Loving it. My favorites are episodes about people and events. Hopefully more to come. Awesome job. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. We appreciate that. We want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Amber Wright and Hilary Fatino. Thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Society's Rise. And society's fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen. The M Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time. <laughs> <laughs>